0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Clara is sorry. Clara is always sorry. She had a good, normal childhood, but somewhere in middle school, she became shy, very withdrawn. She had a few very embarrassing experiences, and these drove her deeper into her own mind to find a safety there, put up very large walls. Clara is morally good, and so she has a lot of people who like her, and there's a lot of people she knows, but if she's honest, she doesn't really feel like she knows anyone. She doesn't really let anyone in. Clara's never really been comfortable talking to other people and people would be surprised because she talks to other people a fair bit, seems very polite, but she's never really been comfortable talking to others and she tends to walk away from most interactions with a sense of, why do I make everyone uncomfortable? Why can't I just be normal? What is wrong with me? As high school began. The gospel that Clara had heard week after week after week in the good church she was attending finally hit home for her. Clara had never had a problem admitting her own sinfulness. In fact, she admitted it a lot, maybe too much. She admits her own sinfulness, but it was the gospel offer, Christ extending His hand. That was hard for her to believe. And yet at the beginning of high school, sitting under a preaching, she saw the hand of Christ extended with mercy, not just to mankind generally but for the first time really to her to clara and she received that she took hold of that hand by faith and she began to experience changes her desires began changing she had truly trusted in jesus christ unfortunately not everything was changing however now as a christian she would still come home from school go upstairs into her bedroom by herself lay face down on the floor, and just feel the crushing weight of her own failures, a sense that she would never be good enough for God, for others, for herself, for anyone, that she messed everything up, that she is the scum of the entire earth. This is not the opinion that others have of Clara, but this is always the opinion she finds in her own mind about herself. At school, she is the designated quote-unquote Christian, and the changes that had happened in her life were very strong. She is now active in helping evangelize other people, sharing the gospel with others. She's fellowshipping with believers. She's the person other people look to because she's studying her Bible faithfully, and people look to her for answers. So others view her with a great deal of respect. And Clara, when she thinks of herself, doesn't think that way, but she's so desperate to get the thumbs up from God that she begins looking at the approval of others as if that were the thumbs up of God. She begins needing other people to approve of her. What this means in Clara's life is that when she gets a compliment, that carries her like a wave through the week. But when she gets even the slightest criticism, she's a good Christian, so she always receives it well in the moment. But later, as she reflects on it, that's what crushes her, alone in her room, on the floor, a sense of her own failure, her own worthlessness. She says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the scum of the earth. I'm an inconvenience. I'm a bad example of a Christian. I'm a Debbie Downer. I ruin everything. And so there Clara is, on the floor again, face down, feeling the weight of her own failures. She's sorry, she's sorry to God, she's sorry to everyone. Is there hope for Clara? Of course, this class is one prolonged argument that says, yes, there is hope for Clara, for every person we talk about, and for yourself when it comes to your actual life. What we're talking about here is not you Sunday morning necessarily, but we're talking about you on Wednesday and every Clara on Wednesday, and what we really are, what we sometimes disguise when we're meeting together. This is who we really are, what we really deal with, and is there hope for us during the week? This class is arguing that yes, there is. In this particular case, since we're going to talk about the love of God, and then at the end, talk about how it gives us a right, healthy, biblical confidence. It's worth noting, just in passing, and this isn't to be overly critical, but this is worth noting. The world, if it heard a story like this from Clara, has its own ideas about what the problems are. It has even its own wording, even its own labels, and you're all very familiar with this. We would say this is a classic case of low self-esteem. The world would say that this is an example of low self-worth. That Clara needs to work on positive self-talk, that this is critical inner voice, and the world does have answers for those problems that it designates, and not all of those observations are wrong, of course, but then it has its own set of answers, and you know what these are too. Usually, it's therapy. It's seeking out what we would call, all the way from Abraham Maslow, self-actualization, where Clara gets beyond this. She has some problems with her parents, in her past, whatever, she needs to get beyond this and self-actualize. She needs, of course, an increased self-esteem. She needs to reframe her self-talk. She needs therapy. So the world has ideas of what's wrong, and the world has ideas of how to make it right. And as Christians, of course, living in this world, you've all had to be face-to-face with the idea of psychology today, and how do you handle those labels and those solutions and some people say these really helped me and others say they didn't so how do you navigate that i just want to make one observation as we're getting started and i hope this isn't uh fueled in any sense by pride because we've all got issues all right but i do want to make it really clear if you think about these kinds of psychological ideas which happen outside the church the world has these answers and observations The generation, and I think this is self-evident, the generation that most embraces wholeheartedly both the labels and the solutions would be what we call Gen Z, kind of high school on right now. So if you go on social media, these are the labels. This is the language itself. This is how it's talked about, and I would just say that if if the world's labeling and answers really are the best there is, better even than what we can find in Scripture, you would expect Gen Z, those who've most embraced this psychological approach to these problems, to be the ones who have best overcome a low sense of self-esteem. Those who have the most happiness, who are struggling the least with negative self-talk. And you are aware and this is not a criticism of a whole generation or anything like that, but I just want you to be aware that the reverse is absolutely true. And those in the culture are just observing how this younger generation coming up, for a variety of reasons, are not experiencing, even by their own definitions, higher levels of self-esteem. It's just the reverse. There's a lot of self-loathing, a lot of misery, a lot of depression, high, high numbers of it, in the generation that most interacts with psychological ideas. So we're not trying to be overly critical and say, ah, they're all wrong and we're right. But I just want to give you a confidence when we have a class like this, and I'm saying the Bible gives us answers to these struggles we all deal with, and those answers are in God himself, and the world would consider that incredibly naive. And I just want to give you something in response in your own thinking to say, well, it's what the world is doing is is simply not working. Maybe individual cases, but not as a whole. My confidence, I hope will be your confidence too, is there can be insights from other people and we talk about work through practice, how do we handle things, but I want you to have a real confidence that there is a sufficiency in the Bible because it presents you who God is. And if you know who God is, that is the essence, that is the core of the solution to what you're dealing with on Wednesday. So that's just a beginning observation here. So like I said, what we're talking about today, for many of us, a favorite subject, it is the attribute of God that we call the love of God. So most of this class, we're going to talk about biblically what that means. We'll circle around at the end, talk about how that may apply to you on Wednesday and to Clara. So let's just get into this. Now, you might think the love of God... I mean, these kindergartners know that. (laughs) How are we going to spend, you know, half an hour on the love of God? Well, let me just tell you, half an hour is not enough. And there's a lot I have to not say. The love of God in the Bible, it's not that it's confusing, okay? Don't want you to think of it as confusing. What you've experienced as a Christian, you've experienced the love of God. You're reading the Bible, you know John 3.16, God so loved the world, you know Galatians 2.20, Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't want you to come away from this class as we dig into this subject thinking like, oh man, I don't know anything about the love of God. You do. But in a class like this, what we do want to accomplish is to try to push a little further, try to be a little clearer in how we understand God's love, because God's love. This is probably true of all God's attributes, but there is not a confusing complexity, but there is a richness about God's love. And as you read the Bible, you encounter not a simple, monochrome, one-dimensional love of God, but something very rich. So what we want to do is look at this rich love of God today. We usually start with a definition. What? The love of God is. And in this case, I'm typically leaning on Wayne Grudem, his systematic theology. Here, I'm not going to fully lean on that. Wayne Grudem defines the love of God as God eternally giving of himself for others. And that's not bad. It's Wayne Grudem. I'm not going to say that's bad. That's very good. It seems to me that that's maybe an effect of God's love, if this makes sense. I'm not going to define God's love simply as the giving of Himself. I think the love of God is something true about Him that leads to Him giving of Himself to us. So we would say it's the love of God that brought Jesus to the cross. It wasn't Jesus going to the cross itself. That's the love and that's it. There's something true about God, however mysterious it may be, that He's the sort of God that does give of himself to others. So, in terms of a definition, I don't really have one. (laughs) Because I don't know what to call that. What do you call that? Um, I'm going to, with lots of caveats, just simply think of the love of God as the affection that God, and here's the word that some of you are going to not like it, and that's fine, okay, but I'm just going to use it, we'll define it, but The affection God feels. Can I say that? The affection God feels toward others that leads to His desiring the good of those others. So that's why the giving happens. He wants the good of them, so He gives. But I want to focus the love of God on the affection, because what I don't want us to come away doing is there was a sort of reaction, I think it was I wasn't alive, I think it was to the lovey dovey feely stuff of the seventies and the flower children and everything. I think at that time the idea of God's love very much went to like this, you know, a feel it, you know, it's like plush carpety soft night. Nice, okay. And there was a reaction in the Christian world rightly against that that said no DC talk. Love is a verb. <laughs> love is a thing you do, right? It's not just you feel it. It's active. Very true. It compels action, so that's right, but I don't want to overcorrect so that you're left with a thought of God as it's just the doing of things that shows His love, and He doesn't really feel an affection for you, because I do believe biblically the love of God for you, especially if you're a believer, it involves more than just what He coldly does for your benefit Do that to the cross. It's a verb, but it's more than that verb. It is an affection. or call it something else, but it's something in God that He feels toward you. And I mean, if you're a believer, I don't have to convince you of this. You you know this. This is what, when you first come to Christ especially, just excites you. Can you believe that God loves you? (laughs) What in the world? And it's an amazing thought. So in terms of a definition of God's love, I do want to call it an affection. And I can't define that a lot more than that. There are a lot of very difficult discussions in theology about the emotions of God and I'm not going to get into it. (laughs) Um, There's a term called impassibility and actually Beau folk did a good job defining that for us last night or yesterday at the men's breakfast but impassibility, God is not passively being influenced by things outside of himself Unfortunately, some people, especially earlier in the church, less so now, took that to mean that God doesn't really feel any emotion at all. Because when you feel an emotion, you get angry, you're responding to something. You feel love, you're responding. And theologians didn't want to think of God as responding. And so what they did is they effectively eliminated any sense of emotion or feeling in God. I want to push back against that. Maybe for some of you, it's not even a struggle. So just ignore this. But for others of you, if you have a hard time imagining God as anything but a cold monarch of the skies, maybe doing good things for people, can you imagine him like the Old Testament talks about, rejoicing over his people like a bride rejoices over a bridegroom? That's the language God decided to use. And um, if it's a good wedding, (laughs) it's not a little rejoicing. That's a lot of rejoicing. That's a lot of feeling. So whatever God's emotions may be, and granted, they're different than yours, your emotions are tied to your physical body. God doesn't have a physical body. You know, you could zap your brain with a little electrode and you could feel certain emotions just from that. God doesn't have a brain that that can happen, okay? You could have a meal, you're digesting it, and you feel depressed because you're digesting a meal, you know? So our bodies influence our emotion, I get it. But, so God's emotions are different, but I do think it's important. That when we think of the love of God, even if it's incomparably greater than the emotions we feel, that we do think of it not just as action, but you think of it as, like, God loves you, feels, or whatever word you want, an affection towards you. I don't think we should take that away from Christians, from ourselves, so... In terms of defending that, so there's a definition, in terms of defending that love is an attribute of God, it's the easiest defense I'll ever have to make, (laughs) because we're in 1 John right now, and two times in 1 John, John says, God is love. (laughs) So there you go. There it is, in the Bible. That's in chapter 4, it's in verses 8 and 16, he says, God is love. So you know that God is love. But let's now focus in a little bit. So there's just a definition, it's this affection God feels toward another, and it leads to a giving for the benefit of another. But let's dig into this a little bit. This is where, (laughs) I want to say this is where things get a little more complex. You might feel like they already did. (laughs) I get that, but I do want to press in a little bit um, on how the Bible presents God's love. Let's begin in the most important place when it comes to the love of God. And you may think the cross, we're going to get there. Actually, I want to go back before the beginning of the creation. Love is an essential, necessary attribute of God. It's something that was true of Him before there was any other outside of God for God to love. Before you existed, or any angel, or any human or any material anything, there was God. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1. And there was God, before the beginning, by Himself. And like we've talked about, people think He was lonely, He wanted someone to love, so He makes creation. But we've already said that's not true. It's not the biblical picture. God was perfectly, fully, completely, richly expressing love before there was any creature for Him to love. How is this possible? This is possible because of the beautiful doctrine of the Trinity. God is one being, but He exists as three persons, and even if we can't pierce through the cloud of that mystery to fully understand it, we know that from all eternity the Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. Both loved the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loved them. And they were not lacking in love. They didn't create because there was just a little love, and they wanted a lot of love. It wasn't that way. It was a complete, full, satisfying love. And it already existed. The basis of all love in the universe, all of it. So tell the hippies from the 70s too, (laughs) confused on that. The basis of all love in the universe is the very being, the very nature of God, that He exists as three in one. You can see some of this in the scriptures. John 17, we had looked at. Verse 24, Jesus says, You loved me before the foundation of the world. So there's love. And when are we talking about? Before the foundation of the world. John 3:35, the Father loves, present tense now, that was loved, present, loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. So the love of the Father for the Son before the foundation of the world and persists through time to the present, it's always been there and always remains as the foundation of all other love. So it's hard to start a discussion of the love of God for us without first talking about the love of God for God. For some of us, this will be difficult to grasp because you know you've spent your whole Christian life trying not to love yourself. (laughs) We're all naturally selfish. I love myself, you know? And you hear God loves you, you go, of course He loves me. I love myself too. And you spend your whole Christian life fighting this temptation to love yourself. But I want you to understand your loving of yourself is only wrong because you're not worth loving completely with all your love in the way God is. It would be wrong of God To love you more than he loves himself. You believe that? Who is the most lovable being? The most worthy of love in the universe? It is not you. And it's not me. It is God himself. And God always does what is right. Therefore, he eternally loves himself. Again, it's a trinity of three persons. But this is not our kind of selfishness. But it is a kind of divine selfishness that's right. That's appropriate. And it's the basis of all other loves, is God's love for Himself. Here's John Frame on this idea, quote, God loves Himself in His Trinitarian society. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. The love between the three persons is eternal, so He would have been a loving God even if He had not created the world. His love is a necessary attribute, meaning one without which he would not be God. All right, hopefully you're convinced. God loves himself, and that's wonderful. That's so wonderful. All right, so that's where the love of God at first expresses itself. There's the core of it, is God's love for himself as a trinity. And it's because God has this overflowing love for himself, that that love then extends to creatures, us, once He creates us. That's the basis, and we get the overflow of that love. So let's move now to really what we mainly think about when we talk of the love of God. You don't think of God loving Himself. You're mainly thinking of God's love for you or God's love for people. So let's talk about that now. All right, so D.A. Carson, you may know him, D.A. Carson, great Bible theological scholar, he has written a very important book. It's less than 100 pages, so you can get a free PDF online. It's a very important book based on some of his lectures, and it is called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. (laughs) So if what we talk about confuses you, go read him. He'll make it clearer. But he does a very good job of taking the Bible very seriously and saying these are different ways the Bible talks about God's love. It's not just one uniform way. There are different ways God talks about it. The first way is what we just talked about. He gives five. The first one he says, quote, the peculiar love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. So now you know when you read John and you come across that, you know that. You know that's part of God's love. No problem. But there are four more. So let's move into these. These first two we're going to talk about, we're going to step back and look at God's love in what we will call a general love, meaning this that we're about to talk about is a love that applies to every person in the world for all time. Some of it possibly even to non-persons, to material creation. God has a love in some sense for his creation. But let's just focus on people. Does God love everybody? And the answer is yes. In two ways, not in every way, but in two ways, God does love everyone. You can tell any person you meet, God loves you, if you mean it in these two biblical ways. And they're absolutely true. Here's the first one, God's providential love over all that he has made. What do we mean by that? God's providential love over all that he has made. The main passage that shows us this love of God is one of the most important in the whole Bible, and it is the passage where Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, is telling his followers, the world, they love their neighbors and they hate their enemies, And you're not going to be like that. He says, you are going to be people, disciples who love your enemies. If you have any enemies, at first, that sounds outrageous. (laughs) Why would I love my enemies? They don't love me. Why do I love them? Well, good of you to ask. And the very reason that you must love your enemies, Jesus says, is because God loves them. God doesn't just love good, righteous people. Jesus makes very clear God loves bad, unrighteous people. Good, righteous, bad, that's everybody in the world. And Jesus says God loves them and that's why you have to love them. So here's the passage in full. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor. That's from Leviticus. That is said in the scriptures. This is not in the scriptures. Somebody added this, probably us, you know. And hate your enemy. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's a reason. Here's a reason. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How does this make us sons, meaning like God, our Father? Well, here's how. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It doesn't just rain on good people's houses. It's not just good people who get to eat food. As Asaph said in his psalm, why is it sometimes the wicked prosper even more than the righteous? This is a demonstration of God's love, and it's not exclusive to those who deserve it. It is a love that God feels for everyone. You could have the most wicked, evil, corrupt person in the cubicle next to you at work, just a very vile person, misogynistic, absolutely cruel, and you could say with complete honesty, God loves you. because thats Is He eating? Does rain fall on His house? Does He get to eat crops? Those are all demonstrations of God's love. Romans 2 talks about, don't you know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? So that's to unbelievers. Don't you know it's the kindness of God to your cubicle neighbor, evil as he is, that's meant to lead him to repentance. It's God's love. Jesus continues, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? I mean, you might as well not be a Christian. You don't have to be a Christian to love people who love you. Everybody does. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others, you know? Go be a Buddhist. Go be Zoroastrian or something. Why be a Christian? You don't need that. Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Here's the conclusion. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And perfect in this case is specifically referring to the fact that God loves everyone. That's why you love everyone. That's why you love the person you ran into this week. You've got weird tension from bad stuff in the past. They did. They never asked forgiveness. It's awkward. And you love them. Because does God love them? God loves them. So the first way that God generally loves is just this, what theologians have called a benevolence. You know that word, benevolence? Bene. Latin idea of good, and volance is coming from the word for will. God's will is good. It's generous. It's kind. He wills good things, even for those who don't deserve it, all of us, even for the bad. It's his benevolence. Theologians also talk of God's beneficence, just the idea that God does good. You saw it there. He does good. He sends rain for everybody. So God's benevolence and his beneficence, this applies absolutely to everyone. This tells you something important about God. And if you don't think of God this way, you've got to start thinking of God this way. Is God a God of wrath? Yeah. Is God justly angry against sin? Yes. Is God upset that the culture is going somewhere in a handbasket? Is God upset about that? Yes, God is upset about that. He's not like, I don't care. He's not the 70s hippie like, it's all cool, everybody. That's not God. But affirming those things, we also have to affirm, does God genuinely, with some kind of affection, love even those made in his image who are in open, full rebellion? Does God love the politicians in the other political party who are ruining things? And I didn't say which political party, okay? But you know, you're thinking of whoever you're thinking of, right? And you, get, you read the news and you get worked up. Okay, disagree, disagree. Continue disagreeing. If it's bad, disagree. God disagrees. Does God love these people? Love your enemies. But you only do that if you really believe God loves them. So, God's providential love over all that he's made... D.A. Carson gives us one other way that God generally loves everyone, and maybe not everyone holds to this, especially in circles that are, um, we, we would consider some of our views to be Calvinistic. The term has baggage, but it's a good term. That's what it means. High view of God's control and sovereignty in the world, and in some of these circles, there are some who would deny this next point. I do not. I think this is biblically defensible. This is the way the Bible presents God, so let me talk about it. It is God's salvific, that's a fun word, add that word to your vocab, that's a fun word, salvific, it means saving, okay, so God's saving stance toward His fallen world. And you see these in passages of the New Testament where it talks about God desiring lost people to be saved, and it speaks of God desiring that even for people who never are. That's why some people will deny this, say, well, if He didn't elect them, does He really love them? Does He really want them to be saved? You're trying to pierce into mysteries. The way the Bible presents it is in a mysterious way. God does have a saving stance. He desires. So, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, I'm not talking about the evil system of the world, when First John says don't love the world, we're talking about people, we're talking about all the people on the world. God loved the world that He gave His Son for the sake of salvation. Yes, it's only salvation of those who believe, but notice how he puts it. He doesn't say, for God so loved the elect. Some take it that way, but I take this as God so loved the world. And I take it that way, too, because look at Ezekiel 18.23. God says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? There's something true in God. Even when we think about his eternal election, decrees, these are true. But we can't deny passages like this that say there's something about God where He wants to express Himself to us so that we think of Him as a God who here does not delight in the death of the wicked. Will He get glory from it? Certainly. Does He delight in it actively? Is it that sort of God? No. He has a salvific stance. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. It's not turn to me and be saved if you're elect. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. There is in God's heart, because of love, this desire for the good of the creature. And sin complicates that, but there it is. So can you tell an unbeliever God loves you? I believe you can, if you mean it in these two ways. God's providential love over all he's made and his salvific stance toward all he's made. All right. That brings us to our next point here, final point point actually. We've been talking about God's love generally, but now we need to focus it in on the love that the Bible talks about more than any other love, the love that you think about more than any other love, and this is the love of God specifically for His people. And this is the greatest love any human can experience. Carson gives two points in defining God's, what we'll call his special love. So if you're a Christian, you have God's general love, but you also have God's special love. First, God's particular, effective, selecting love toward his elect. God's effective, particular, selecting love toward his elect this is everywhere in the New Testament. Think about 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Okay, define it. Not that we've loved God, fair enough, but that He loved us. Who's the us? Is it everybody? No. Believers. He loved the elect. He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is not the propitiation for everyone's sins, generally. The guy in the cubicle next to you, if he doesn't believe, not the propitiation for his sins, but for you in your cubicle, this is a selecting love. Why are you a believer? God in love chose you, and it is effective. You come to Christ. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, this is a very individual love. It's not God generally loves all his people, kind of puts up with you, but he kind of loves all his people, and you're clumped in. No. Paul says, Jesus loved me, specifically me. And that's true for you if you're a believer. This is a powerful love. The cross is the best picture of it. That's the degree of the love. You see an unconditionality in it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God initiates. He sets His love on you, the Old Testament says. Finally, God's love, point five of Carson Finally, God's love is some, okay, listen, this is important, and I wish we had a long time to talk about this, because the question comes up, is God's love unconditional? Yes and no, yes and no. So listen to this fifth point, it's in the Bible. Finally, God's love is sometimes said to be directed toward his own people in a provisional or conditional way condition that is unobedience. Oh, this is why we need a lot of time to talk about this. We're not saying that you earn God's love by working really hard as a Christian. No. While you were dead in sins, Christ died for you. God elected you before you'd done good or bad. This is not about you earning God's love. And if you live that way, your life's going to be terrible. You have God's love freely, unconditionally. He chose you. You had no say in it even back then. He chooses you. That's the joy of God's love. So when you're having a bad day, that love is still there. But there's more. (laughs) The Bible makes pretty clear at the same time that that's true, that there is a conditional element in the love of God. It is not you have to obey to a certain degree to earn God's love, but it is Here God is loving you and as you obey more and become more like Christ, we see biblically an, this is going to be hard to hear, let me defend it, okay, an increase in God's love for you. Is that shocking? Let me give you some verses here, at least this verse. You know this verse, John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So here you are, here's someone not keeping your commandments, you know. here's someone keeping the commandments, you have them, you keep them, you're expressing love to Jesus for that, and he who loves me, this person, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I think the way to understand this is that God, just like he loves all creation because it's his creation, and he sees reflected light of himself in it and he loves that because he loves himself the more you look like Christ the more of himself he sees in you and if you're not convinced by this verse I've got more but I don't have time (laughs) you can come talk to me but I do think this is something the Bible teaches that our love for God is something God loves in us So there is a conditionality in that sense. But again, this is God's work in us. So you're not earning it. But I do want you to think that way. Let's wrap this up then by me giving you one passage. Here's God's love. If you're in Christ, God loves you because you're His creation. He has a saving stance toward you. But more specifically, God has this particular selective affection for you that's unconditional and that He initiates it. He does it. He'll keep His promises to you. You're not afraid you're going to lose His love. And at the same time as you grow in holiness, God loves seeing that. He loves that in you. So there you are. Now what does this do for Clara? What does this do... For us on Wednesday. Thankfully, we'll preach this in a while in 1 John 4, but I just want to give it to you in closing here. 1 John 4 connects the love of God to our confidence, and here's how it does it verses 16 to 18. So we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. I hope you have after this class. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have self-esteem, no, (laughs) confidence, confidence for the day of judgment. You want that? You want confidence for the day of judgment? (laughs) I want that. You want that? He says it's by the love of God for us, by knowing that. And because as he is, so also are we in this world, our love for others. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. A mature understanding of God's love for you will produce a confidence in your life. If you believe God loves you, And even if your spouse doesn't love you today, even if your neighbor doesn't love you today, even if the other political party doesn't love you, even if people are very unkind toward you, even if you're unkind toward yourself, you believe in the love God has for you. It gives you a confidence. Clara is standing in her high school hallway. She is lost. It is the first week of her junior year, and she cannot remember where her next class is. Everyone else scurries out of the hallways, the bell rings, she's late, her heart is racing, this is for her one of the worst of all circumstances, and she is tempted to be sorry, to be sorry that she exists, to be sorry to everyone, she's sorry to the office staff at the principal's office as they think about what's wrong with you, she's sorry for the people in her class, they're wondering why are you so late, why can't you figure this out? What is everyone going to think? She's tempted to think all of that. This is Wednesday, but this Wednesday something is changing for Clara. And even as her heart races, she whispers to herself, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Her heart is still racing. It didn't stop. (laughs) But she's committed to believing that that's true. Contrary to everything she's told herself for a long, long time. Those habits die hard, but she is committed that she's going to believe that God loves her in that hallway, in this moment. She's going to believe she's not an accident. God has chosen her. She is not a waste of space. And you might expect that she is going to now increase her self-esteem, but I want you to know that is exactly what Clara does not do. Clara is not, in fact, focused upon herself, nor is she trying to esteem herself. Instead, she has turned her mind to God. It's not God loves me, but it's God loves me, and this gives her, slowly but surely, a degree of confidence. She doesn't have to go searching herself for, why am I lovely? She's not finding anything there, but God loves her. That's the start. She walks to the principal's office. She walks in those doors, somewhat humiliated, but trying hard to believe God's love for her, and then it breaks through to her, and she realizes, you know what? God does love me. You know what? I can breathe a sigh of relief here. I'm still loved. It's okay. And as she does that, she notices another girl in the principal's office, vaguely knows her from one of her classes, tears streaking down her face. She sits there waiting for the principal, and usually Clara would not say a thing. Who is she to help anybody else? She's just going to make it worse. But today, resting in the love of God, Clara can't help but try to extend that because she's not stuck in a cycle of self-focus, she's focusing outward in love because she has a God who loves this girl crying in this office. Clara loves this girl crying in this office and in a way she wouldn't usually. She ventures to start speaking with her. Clara is not becoming self-confident, but she is becoming confident. The love of God is strengthening her weak knees. It's freeing her from self-absorbed misery, she is beginning to believe for real that God actually loves Clara. And breathing the sigh of relief, she's starting to be able to focus outward on others. There is hope for Clara. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us. And thank you that it's not necessary that we understand every part of your love to know the simple fact that you do love us. You have expressed it to us in the cross. You've expressed it to us in the rain. You've expressed it to us in breakfast this morning. You expressed it to us in the oxygen we're continuing to breathe. You express it to us in all of your promises of eternal life, happiness, felicity forever in paradise with you. There's really no way you could express it more to us. I pray that you would help us on our part to receive it and not to be resistant to it with all of our arguments about how we don't deserve it. That's true. And we do want to be more holy, that you may love what you see in us. But we thank you that even now, you do love us, for Christ's sake. And you love what you're doing in us. pray that you would help us to live every day, to abide in the love of God. In Christ's name we pray.